Hello and welcome to the very first inaugural, I guess that's what they mean, inaugural is the first, episode of Untold Stories of the Caribou Chilcotin Coast. My name is Jason Ryle. I'm happy to be your host. And with me tonight is Mike Rutaskitz. Uh, Mike, let's, uh, I want to start off and just kind of give people a bit of an idea of what I know about you. And then I want to hear from you and you tell me your story. And you can tell me that I'm wrong. Um, so what I know about Mike is that you are a former chief of the uh, Bonaparte Indian Band. You now live in Deep Creek, Soda Creek, uh, with your wife, Cheryl. That's You're, right. You guys run a, a, an Aboriginal consulting business out of uh, Deep Creek. And um, you're also involved in tourism because you're a member of the board of the Kiribati Coast and Coast Tourism Association. Those three points, I think I'm pretty safe in trying to uh, guess and, and uh, determine uh, what I know about you. And apparently we have cookies on the table and you have type 2 diabetes. So these cookies are all mine. <laughs> uh, is that fair? Am I close? Yeah, that's right. I'm All also right. a board of director of New Pathways to Gold. Okay, so you're involved with New Pathways to Gold, the Caribou Chilcotin Coast Tourism Association. You're involved in tourism uh, as a bit of an ambassador as well at times with um, Hatsul Heritage Village. Yes. You have a role to play there as well, right? And Barkerville. And Barkerville too, yes. because there's not enough hours in the day. Let's fill them all up, right? <laughs> what do you do at Barkerville? Well, I'm going to what I'll call is a cultural interpretation, um, which is going to be really exciting for me. Uh, just starting on Saturday, July 20th, um, is uh, Barkerville Indigenous Days, and I'll be doing dance performances. We're going to play a stick game up there and storytelling. So um, there's an entourage of people going to be there on Saturday, and, and then after that I'll carry on by myself, uh, probably providing the same type of um, uh, scripting um, uh, on a daily basis up there from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And then I'll come back home uh, for the week. <laughs> Have a good night's sleep, and then uh, you know, get back to work again. Yeah, I think that's great. And uh, from what I understand at Barkerville, I know that they, uh, as an organization, have, and I won't ask you to speak on Barkerville's behalf, but I, I do know that they've said publicly that they are going to steer in a direction where they want to incorporate more of uh, First Nations people's stories because they played a large role in the development of Barkerville. It's not fair. It is so exciting to um, for the folks at Barkerville to have that kind of vision. You know, there's so much to be said of who we are as Indian people, and our history is, is it goes back a long ways. And uh, to be able to share that story, I'm really enthused about that. I'm really excited to be um, uh, part of the team up in Barkerville. So you have a role to play in Barkerville, and um, maybe for those, because this is uh, uh, this episode is going to be published uh, on YouTube and go to the various different channels, for those people that don't know or have never been to Barkerville, um, let's try and give them a sense of what Barkerville is really all about. And um, what I know, I'd like to share with what you know about Barkerville, um, just from a different pr perspective, I suppose. Uh, Barkerville is... In British Columbia, it is the beginning and sort of the pinnacle, if you will, of the Caribou Gold Rush. And it's even larger than the Caribou Gold Rush 
because the gold rush began back in mid-1850s and it started in San Francisco and it went all the way, I believe it went all the way to the Yukon border or into Alaska and, and um, by miners and adventurers and pioneers who were in search of gold. Obviously, it's the commodity of the time. It's the commodity of today as well. But um, it was Billy Barker who happened upon this uh, creek, Williams Creek, in what is now Barkerville, that uh, discovered this um, deposit of gold. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing from some of the stories that I know of Barkerville. Essentially, he became a millionaire in a very short order. And it is as symptomatic of the times, you know, it's a very boom and bust kind of cycle. And it was even more so then, you know, suddenly you go from, um, you know, living in poverty and, and uh, shacks and suddenly you've got more gold than you know what to do with. So now you're instantly rich and you live high on the hog and then your claim goes dry. Um, I don't think that was the case for Billy Barker, but his, his name is synonymous with the history of Barkerville. Now, can you add to that? You know, the, the interesting part of it is um, um, how, how it, how it, played out kind of a sad history there and I'm not going to touch on that at all um, but it, it's important that um, you know there, there is an outstanding question about um, um, what do we do from here um, and and it, it it you put me on the spot I'm sorry I, you know, <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot yeah. it's just um, you know, we both, uh, I think, have an understanding or a knowledge of what Barkerville is or what it is to us. And I think now to us or to me, I'll, I'll, I won't speak for you, but for me, Barkerville is a heritage site. It's a, it's a tourist spot. Um, I know it's history or I know of the history and that it goes back to uh, 1850s um, and uh I understand some of its progression from there, and now it, like I said, it's a historical spot. It's a, it's a great place to go now for families to learn about the history of British Columbia yes, because it, it played a, pivot, a pivotal role in the development of British Columbia. Um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's just you know, if you have more to add, yeah, if you a, have no more, a transition also had to occur in order for that to happen, and it was you know with the original caretakers of. of that land and let alone that resource which included a complete set transformation of values we understood what gold was but it, it there was no value or little value for us about the gold and uh and then it happened so quickly. The transition happened so quickly from, like you said, uh, a boom and a bust. And, um, you know, nowadays we have um, um, so many great opportunities to continue to share the rich culture of, of the original people that um, used that land. And... Um, with the great works that are taking place um, 
about reconciliation, about um, even um, restoring some of the habitat that, that is up there. I know how careful um, the people who work at Barkerville are, are taking, um, you know, in compliance right and left uh, about any movement they make nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. Currently, modern times. Um, when before a lot of that didn't happen and it, it didn't even include us as, um, as the original owners of, of, of the land and resources. Mm-hmm. So interesting transition there. And now uh, we look forward to continuing to, um, uh, like the beaver, strengthen and fortify our um, relationship and renew our relationship with um, the people of Barkerville and the people of, of, uh, of the land. And so that is, is it, is that some of your role now in Barkerville is to um, find that way forward? As well yes, as it is, yes, and and to find the way forward, um, to um, to 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 share the story of the true history um, without without laying guilt, shame, or blame um, on on anyone. There there is a way to do that, and um, you know it didn't happen overnight. But um, you go through a lot of emotions when you think about the huge transition in such a short period of time. You talked about 1851. You know, in in the Indian world, that's a blink of an eye. That's how long we've been here on, on the land, you know. And um, it's really interesting to, um, to be a part of that transition and reconciliation. Can you give me a sense of those stories that you can share or will be sharing at Barkerville about how First Nations people helps, uh, you know, the miners way back when the gold rush began in 1852 or three here in the Caribou. Um, what role was played by First Nations? How much time you got? <laughs> it's the internet, man. We got all the time in the world. <laughs> you know, there, there is a story that connects to that and it's about hard work. It's about collaboration. It's about partnerships. It's about um, getting along and getting along with Mother Earth. And the story is so old that um, I'm going to tell it to you, first of all, in our language. That's how old the story is. Okay. La Cases. Shklaui et shkupakan. O quiaus. Shklaui tikmentus elkst. Shkupakan. O. Tsuitut. Shklaui chapminj et shkupakan. Shklaui. Ends Shkupakan Shkaldus. A long time ago, there was a beaver, and the beaver decided to become friends with a porcupine. And, and they became such good friends that they became relatives. 
but there was the beaver. And he was always going back and forth. He always had a little twig in his mouth. And sometimes it was a pretty good-sized branch that he was lugging along. Well, what he was doing was he was making his home bigger, making his home stronger, making his home more comfortable for his family. But there was the porcupine. And the porcupine sure liked to watch the beaver go back and forth every day. And it was almost like it was the porcupine's job to watch the beaver. Well, the seasons started to change. And the beaver began to worry about his friend. One day, the beaver got so angry at the porcupine that he he put him onto his tail and he drug him all the way to the top of the mountain and he left him there. And his idea and his thinking was, well, at least the porcupine will have to walk all the way down the hill in order to make it back home again and maybe along the way would find a better shelter for himself. And that's the story. <laughs> okay. But the story has a lot of lessons <clears throat> and a lot of teachings in there for me. The story teaches me about having discipline. Discipline to, to learn the language, the Shushwap language, to learn about the medicines, to learn the songs, to learn the dance. The connection with Barkerville and the history of Barkerville is also about discipline. It took not only the local residents, the Indian people of the land, it also took Chinese people, it took um, the newcomers to come in and build that thing, to put it together, to um, generate um, not only employment opportunities and now, uh, which probably wasn't intended, is um, tourism opportunities, you know, through, yeah. the, through the rich history now of, yeah. of Barkerville. And, and so, so through the hard work and the vision of people to... Um, turn um, an extraction of resources into, into um, a tourism opportunity, and now to include indigenous people to share our story about our culture and who we are is, is amazing. It's nothing short of anything else. So you mentioned that when you dance in your regalia, Mike, and I've seen you dance, and it's uh, it's captivating. You're you're definitely you're telling a story while you're doing it. Have you yourself had any other moments of connection with other people that you've been performing in front of, where uh, not only are they engrossed in the performance that you're giving, but you can tell that there's there's some other kind of connection that's going on. Wow, we so many stories to share. You know what? What? Which one comes to the top of my mind? I, after the Olympics, um, there was a lot of really interesting energy that was 
I can't even describe how, how positive it was. So um, then Aboriginal Tourism BC developed a, a native village down in Stanley Park. It became known as the Klahauya Village in Stanley Park. Um, very successful operation, mm -hmm. very, very well put together. And I was part of that. I was uh, one of the cultural interpreters down there. And you talked about, yes, every day, just about every day. I didn't have to, but I'd put on my regalia and just walk around the park and meet people and shake their hands. And I would show them my hand drum, you know. And they, they, a lot of people didn't even ever see one, you know, a hand drum, right? Mm-hmm. There was a little girl from Italy, and very shy. And um, I asked her, I said, have you ever seen a hand drum? And uh, no, you know. And then uh, I said, well, here, uh, hold this. So she, she reached out and looked up at her mom, you know. And, yeah, it's okay, you can hold it. So, And then I gave her my drumstick. And I said, well, and I, I showed her how to hit the drum and make a heartbeat sound and she did. She had a pretty good rhythm, and, and then she was drumming, and I said, don't stop, keep going. And she did, and I started singing oh, to wow. her drum beat. And uh, we, we sang a song together. Or she played the drum, and, and I sang a song. And then I was so proud of her. I said, you know, that takes a lot of courage first of all, to do that, so thank you for that. But I didn't know you knew how to drum. And uh, she was just amazed. They went back to Italy. Three weeks later, they came back to see me again. Three weeks later, they came back from Italy. Yes. <laughs> and she was just enthralled with learning more. And so uh, part of the... Part of the, the drumming, it, it in, involves a game called stick game. So I was very enthused to show her stick game. And so the, there's these um, antlers, uh, deer antlers that you carve and make uh, bones with them. And, and then you hide the bones and then you try to guess the right bone. And, and so um, we played that game and she was just ear to ear smiling and everything and um, when my time with them was over um, I gave her those bones uh, so she has some uh, bones from British Columbia that's incredible in Italy and um, I recently uh, seen a picture of her and uh, she's a, a young lady now so that was a really really great time that we were able to share together and so many stories like that, you know. Um, I have kind of a funny one. Sure. So I'm a storyteller. And uh, part of my work at the Klahoya Village was sharing stories. Again, this, this young boy was uh, enthralled with the, the stories of, of Indians. And, and our session got over and... Um, they went and rode on the miniature train and whatnot and, and those kind of other activities uh, that are down at Stanley Park. And then they came back and he said, "My, the, the, the child's dad said, he, he really wants to learn something else. Is there something else that, that you can tell him that 
about the culture. And I said, yeah, um, the, the eagle is, you know, so majestic. And the, the, there's so much, um, you know, that we can pray on their feathers and, and, and then the, the eagle will fly really high up into the sky and, and deliver the message. But I was telling the little boy, but when, when you're looking up at the eagle and you see how majestic it is and you're looking up there, keep your mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> he just looked at his dad and his dad looked at and they, We all just laughed really hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my that's hilarious and an important lesson for kids to learn for us all to learn i have so many stories about um in my times being the cultural interpreter down there um the drumming and singing and and the dancing uh one time and and even even other workers yeah. You know, they would kind of mosey over to where the stage was, you know, and they'd come over and watch. And this, this one young fella from Squamish peeking around the corner quite often. So one time I said, hey, man, I need some help today. Can you can you come down to the change room and help me out? And, and so, um, yeah, sure, he was really happy to help me, right? He didn't know what he was getting himself into. But <laughs> yeah. we get down to the change room, I said, Put this stuff on. Gave him my moccasins. Oh boy. Gave him my regalia. Tied my bustle onto him. Put my hat on him. I said, you heard the songs well enough. You kind of know what to do. Nobody, none of the other employees knew this was happening. And he comes walking out and he did the dance. And he did really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. That's awesome. And that moment is probably a moment he will cherish and remember for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. And and that happened time and time again, you know. And so that's why I look forward in engaging in Barkerville because those same moments are going to happen again. You know, not the same like that. Whatever, yeah. whatever happens is going to happen, but it's going to be so fun and so enriching for the people that finally have an interest in who we are. Will you be in your regalia in, in Barkerville? As much as possible, yes. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, um, today, all day long, I've been working on a new regalia. So I, I have uh, three now, so now I have four. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be beautiful. Oh, I can't wait. I'm just about done. Yeah? Yeah. Fantastic. You know, I would be remiss, Mike, if I, I didn't catch you on a couple of things. One is you've used two words now that have piqued my interest. And one, if I may use the word, is Indian. And the other is reconciliation. And I... I want to try to explore both of those without making political statements, because that's not what we're here to do. Yeah. Uh, we're a couple of guys that are involved in tourism from different perspectives, as everyone will be from a different perspective. But I want to know about, um, if I can, I, I, 
get your definition in, uh, around the word Indian. Uh, I think a lot of people nowadays are scared to use that word. And even myself from a uh, from wearing one of the hats that I wear in a small community, because we all tend to wear multiple hats, am apprehensive at times around using that word. Should we be? I, I understand uh, your apprehension as well, because, um, um, oh man, we've been called a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> um, personally, I have always preferred the term Indian over Indigenous, over Aboriginal, over First Nations, or any one of those other other words, some of them very poorly stated. The reason I prefer Indian, personally prefer Indian, is because um, I have a card in my wallet that says I am an Indian within the meaning of the Indian Act. So now if I choose to call myself First Nations, for example, there's, there's in a sense, a, a discretion there. And um, uh, take, uh, take the Williams case, the Chilkootin case, where they actually have proved they have title and rights over a large tract of land here in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Those elders and those people who uh, attended uh, the Supreme Court um, provided 336 days of oral testimony. And within those 336 days, the court could not find one discretion, one discretion in any of the statements that all of those elders and those people provided. So... For me, if I use the term Indian and then now I want to be called a First Nation, there's far-reaching legal implications there in a sense that okay. there's a discretion. Mm-hmm. What are you? Are you Indian or are you First Nations? So I have always uh, stuck to the term Indian. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And so then um, I think habitually a lot of people either – they may say it. Uh, they may say the word Indian when uh, talking amongst the confines of their own home or in a secure group of friends or what, what have you. In public, I think a lot of people use the term First Nations because that is what um, society has kind of conditioned us, uh, in a sense, to use that title because you are the First Nations. You are the first people of North America. Uh, is there a right and a wrong term? You know, yeah, that's that's why I said I understand your apprehension because, you know, in a sense, uh, to be careful to not call them the wrong thing, not call us the wrong thing. And you want to be, in a sense, and I know where we avoided a, a di- political discussion, but to be politically correct in a sense, yeah. in that sense, and that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I know friends neighbors and relatives uh, that prefer First Nations. I know friends that prefer to be called Indigenous or Aboriginal. You know, but there's there's always for me that, that one worry that that's uh, discretionary uh, if we were speaking on legal terms. So um, 
currently the the buzzword is indigenous. You yeah, know, a lot of things have been changed to that uh, indigenous affairs um, uh, uh, and whatnot. So, you know, yeah, we we also want to be uh, polite and correct and things like that. But uh, for me, it's it's. Uh, it's being an Indian. That's your personal ownership yes, of the, it is. Uh, yes. the the title or name or description. You're an Indian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and the other word that we talked about was, uh, or that uh, you mentioned, was reconciliation. And I, I want to put that off to the side just for a moment um, because this is getting pretty heavy. You know, we're talking about some sensitive subjects that uh, I think people in society in general are trying to find their way around. And I want to learn a little bit more about you. So in order to shift gears a little bit, I want to, can you tell me, Mike, or would you be willing to share, um, you know, your life story? Like, where did you grow up? How did you become the Mike Rutaskett of today? Hmm, really interesting. You know, um, I was born in Canada, in Oliver, B.C., but as soon as I came out of the hospital, I lived in uh, Washington State. So I was raised oh, okay. uh, mostly in the United States. And then um, uh, through time, um, and uh, there's a, a big piece of land in, in Bonaparte that uh, we own. And so I wanted to begin to learn my roots. Um, I, was, I was down in uh, Newport, Oregon, um, working in a sheet metal fabrication business. And um, the local tribe, the Salets tribe, um, they had a, a, a powwow drum. So they had drum practice. So I would go down and listen to the drum. And then it wasn't long after that that the dancers said, well, if you're practicing on the drum, do you think we could practice dancing? So overnight, this drum practice became powwow practice. Mm -hmm. So I'd go down and sit in the bleachers and and watch. And one time, um, because I knew nothing about the powwow, and uh, one time this elder... um, took his eagle fan and he pointed at me with his fan and then he pointed right by his side and and I didn't know what he meant. He was kind of calling you out. Yes, he was. And so some people came up and said, hey, that's, that's, uh, that's our elder. He's telling you to do something, you better go do it. And so he started teaching me about the powwow and teaching me about each dance and I became very interested in it. And I started dancing. I didn't have regalia or anything. I just went in my Levi cutoffs and T-shirt and <laughs> yeah. and and danced and felt really good about um, the prayers that go with that too because that's what he was teaching me. Uh, teaching me about the discipline that you need to do things in order to be out here in the sacred circle. And then it wasn't long after that, people started, other dancers started giving me parts of their regalia. And um, pretty soon, 
I had a regalia. And now there's a process to, to um, go out into the sacred circle, in a sense I'll say officially, um, through the teachings that the elder gave me, I was to instructed to go out onto the land for four days and four nights without food or water. And uh, I wound up doing that, of all places, with uh, a tribe of Indians from Peru. Peru? I went to um, Machu Picchu and did my four days and four nights on Machu Picchu. You are blowing my mind here as far as historical and landmark connections. Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, they, um, their rituals are basically the same as ours. And um, when I came out, you know, I definitely earned the right to carry eagle feathers. Is this the same or the similar story that you've shared with me before about your headdress, that uh, the eagle feathers that you've collected with your headdress are all feathers that you've earned? Yes. Mm -hmm. Would you, can you share that story with me again now? Yeah. When, when I, when I came off the mountain, I think to put it into perspective, I'm going to finish uh, how how I became the dancer. Yes, but I will. That is part of the story as well. So I, I came out, and um, I, it was Uncle Bo that gave me the eagle that I was to take apart and 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 make my regalia with. But when I was in the mountains, what what came to me was the vision that. Um, each eagle feather carries with it hundreds and hundreds, and I don't know the scientific name. I think I'll call them barbs. So, so an eagle feather has hundreds and hundreds of barbs on it. And uh, what came to me when I came down the mountain that each one of those barbs represent one of our ancestors. My regalia now, including my, um, my feather hat, I carry 438 eco feathers. So by carrying those feathers and by earning the right to carry them, I'm carrying a tremendous amount of responsibility of, of remembering our ancestors, of looking after our ancestors, of taking care of our ancestors, because without them, none of us would be here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. We all got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So now remember now, I, I, I was learning this in Salat's Oregon, and I'm Shushwap. And I love the way that the people of Salat's are becoming stronger again, reconfederated uh, again. Um, recognized as a, as a tribe in, in the United States. I'm so happy that, of the work that they are also going through a transition of reconciliation in order to be recognized. 
And so because I'm Shushwap, I wanted to learn our Shushwap ways, which are very similar. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to move home to Bonaparte. And in 1990, I, I moved to Canada. Um, we have uh, two or three houses uh, on our property in, in, in Bonaparte. And I, I, I got one of them and I moved home. And then started learning this dance, Shushwap style. Right, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, a lot of it is the same. And uh, different colors. Um, my my regalia. You're gonna always see me with uh, roses on my regalia. You know, some people are are bear dancers, or some people are coyote dancers. I've seen people wearing a wolf as part of their regalia, but I, I've always preferred the rose because. Um, um, in, in Bonaparte, there's a lot of wild roses, and um, it is uh, part of the insignia of, of Bonaparte that there's a rose on the, the insignia, the logo, I guess, of, mm -hmm. of Bonaparte is a rose. So I just, that's, that's who I am as a, a dancer. Of. So you moved back home to Bonaparte, and then, uh, and this was roughly 1990, you say, how long after that did you get involved in uh, your band council? Because I, I know of your history that you were a, a previous chief of the Bonaparte Indian Band. So how long did that happen and how did that happen? Is it something that you pursued or were you pulled into it? Yeah, I, I, I never had an agenda um, when I was chief. I, I had an agenda to move our people forward, each and every one. Um, I never intended on, on becoming chief. It wasn't uh, a plan. Um, I have a peculiar addiction to reading. And um, it was through uh, reading about some of the history and then some of the political things that happened as well that I became engaged in, in um, like I said, helping people. And... Um, you know, just like many Indian bands across Canada, we have a lot of work to do in many of the communities, and I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to help. And so I became involved, and then I was nominated, and I won. <laughs> <laughs> Threw your name in the ring, and next thing you know, you've got it. Mm -hmm. Again, so so reading reading as much material as I could get my hands on as quickly as possible. There was a huge learning curve there. Um, I became, you know, I, I, as part of the environment, I always wanted to protect as much as I can, and I quickly learned that um, you have to pick your fights. You can't fight for everything and, mm -hmm. and save everything and this and that. There, There isn't a... a, a, a a driven economy that we need to protect and we need to look after. But we can also do that by, by taking care of the water too and being in compliance and doing what we say we're going to do. 
I literally um, am proud to say that I helped to turn our community around by uh, taking bold leadership steps uh, and uh, carrying with me the uh, the environmental protection in my back pocket at all times. Good job. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So how long were you chief in Bonaparte? I served five terms, uh, so I served for 10 years in Bonaparte. Yeah. And when I left, um, uh, Bonaparte had a 217% solvency rating. So, <laughs> <laughs> Good work. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Uh, so then if you had done such a great job of turning your, your community around, uh, why did you leave? You're not going to believe my answer. Uh, I, I really want to know your to. answer now. <laughs> I guess during that time of being chief, I also became an activist. Um, yes, I was. I was the guy on the front page of the newspapers, wearing camouflage. Standing on the road. And um, when I look back at it now and I think about how I moved our community forward, that didn't do it. And early on, um, the, the Olympics were awarded to Vancouver. In, okay, in 2010. Mm-hmm. And uh, there I was again, found myself on the road. And then I look back at it, and I didn't, I didn't move our community forward by doing that. As a matter of fact, um, one of the Supreme Court rulings, uh, Delgamoch in 1997, um, clearly stated that um, Indians have the right to choose to how, uh, what their land can be put. They had a right to choose. How the land can be used? Is yes. That, yeah, okay. And so I thought about that. I thought about that ruling, and I, I've I've read it uh, several times. Um, and where the Olympics occurred, that's not my territory. As a matter of fact, those chiefs wanted the Olympics to be on their territory, so I had to respect their right. So they were contrary to the way you were feeling. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, what had happened, I, I changed my tune. I stopped going to those um, um, protests. And I became involved with tourism and became very excited and very interested about all of the opportunities that Aboriginal tourism has. Is this, sorry, as a result of uh, the Olympics? Yes. Okay. Um, I I became involved in, um, you couldn't just get a job to go to the Olympics. There was all kinds of training that you had to take, and I took it all. Um, I became involved and um, wound up working, of all places, right at the Aboriginal Pavilion, front and center at the Olympics. And you not only went from being a guy who was kind of unsure if he should support it to being the front man. And this is something, this is a fact that I know about you, is that you were, at one point, you were the most photographed Indian in the world. 
because of the 2010 Olympics and because of your position at the um, uh, First Nations Indigenous uh, Pavilion? Yeah, that that was uh, such a fun time in my life that, um, you know, um, you're going to see me around uh, tourism and the opportunities that it provides uh, f for the rest of my living days because we all have a lot of work to do and and it provides, like I said, an opportunity for us to get a real story out there about who we are and, and um, it's just so exciting to be a part of that. So was it... Um, it sounds like it was a life-changing experience for you, your involvement in the Olympics. And when I realized, uh, when I realized how the change was going to occur, this, this negativity was lifted from me. And, um, it, I was a lot lighter. I was a lot happier. I was. I became a lot more healthy, and um, you know. It, so in <laughs> it's uh, profound, but um, Aboriginal tourism made me made me a, a better person on this planet. Wow, that's a profound statement so was there a can you think back mike was there a a single moment or was there an influence in your life or a conversation or something that happened for you in your life that helped flip that switch between being against it and being a you know a, a staunch uh, protester and realizing that you needed to work together well was it something yes, as simple there, as that? Yes, there was. Yeah? Okay. It's complex. <laughs> I get that about you. But it happened on December 11th, 1997. Seven Supreme Court judges ruled unanimously that title exists and cannot be extinguished. The court ruling was Delgamuch, and I talked about it a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So it provided a, a clean and clear pathway. It paved the road for us to become engaged, to take those bold steps um, in forestry, in, in tourism, in, in business opportunities that are available to help um, get us out of this uh, poverty. So yes, that, that was the defining moment, was that day. Okay. And then it was that day, and it was that event that afterwards, um, that switch was flipped in you, and you recognized that it was more about um, getting along and working together to move forward than it was about digging in your heels and saying, no, uh, I don't want this to happen. You got it right. Um, through the years, and yes, the Olympics were coming to Vancouver, then Premier Campbell talked about 
us. <laughs> all, we're all here to stay. And we need to work through things so we can get along. So it was then Premier Gordon Campbell. It, it sounds like from your answer that it was his words about that we all, none of us are going anywhere. We're all here to stay. Yeah, and um, through through that time of uh, me being chief in Bonaparte, I became the uh, elected secretary treasurer for the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, um, and it was through that time, for the first time in thirty three years, that the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, who are basically opposed to the BC Treaty process sat down at the table with the First Nations Summit, those who are fully engaged in negotiations, and the BC Assembly of First Nations. It's the first time that those three um, political parties came together, and we formed, I was a founding member of what is now currently known as the First Nations Leadership Council. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um due to um, some of the work that uh, Premier Campbell did. I, I shake my head because I I am learning things about you that, like, you are very politically involved, uh, and I, it sounds like that world just kind of pulled you in because of the passions that you had and the purpose that you had in wanting to move your people forward. And so it's just, uh, it, it amazes me that the level of involvement that you've had politically uh, in the past and now here you are in the Caribou Chilcotin Coast promoting tourism. It almost makes me think that your professional resume is like you're grooming yourself or you're being groomed for uh, run at uh, larger level politics. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot or anything like that, but it sounds like uh, in the spirit of working together and moving forward, you're an ideal candidate, man. I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> I bet you do. To put my name forward. And um, I'm not very interested in it. Um, I'm more interested on the ground, helping people, um, teaching people about um, some of the truths that they, they, they need to hear. And I'm more interested in um, a healthy nation. I'm more interested in, in the wildlife and, and, and the fish and how, how we can um, balance it out where we have abundance again. More interested in doing that kind of thing than sure. anything political these days. Uh, I I understand, and it, uh, it everything like that revolves around a person's personal values, and I have the utmost respect for the work that you're doing and the reason why you're doing it. You uh, used another term here that I think uh, requires a little definition for some people, um, and that is Aboriginal tourism. Or I guess now it's indigenous tourism. Um, what exactly does that mean, and what does it mean to you? It it means full blown excitement. <laughs> it is one of the largest growing businesses in the province, and 
for me to be part of that and for me to um, have input in the goings-on, especially around here locally now, is uh, just brings a big smile to my face because there is so much opportunity out there for um, employment, um, skills development, personal capacity development, and um, and the partnerships that are formed and uh, out of those um, those kind of deals. So, can you define? Can you explain what Aboriginal tourism is? Is it something as simple as? Um, like I'm thinking of a an arts and crafts store that exposes people to local First Nations culture, or local Indian culture. Is it something as simple as that, or is it more broad? Yeah, it's more broad than that. Um, the snowmobile trails, you know, or or the work that um, Triple CTA does from say say just just from. Yale to Barkerville. Um, 39 First Nations communities in between here and there. And just think of the energy that can be created when there's buy-in from those Indian bands Mm -hmm. and the opportunities that could be provided to those Indian bands about... um, let alone helping themselves to uh, the rich uh, culture and history, but being able to promote and share those stories up and down that whole um, that whole trail, that whole corridor that, yeah. that uh, what is now uh, in some circles, in many circles, is the Gold Rush Trail. Gold Rush Trail, yeah, right. So it's if I understand it right, it's about um, inclusion of. Uh, you know, the different Indian bands that uh, lie between here and there, or really anywhere in BC. It's about uh, having an active part and being at the table or being um, part of the economy of tourism with an ability to share your culture. Yes, there it is. You, you've, yeah? hit, you've hit it. I hope mm-hmm. we'll record this and somebody better write that down. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that the gist or the impetus or the catalyst behind Aboriginal tourism or even leadership in general is providing your people with economic opportunity to move them forward and to better their lives. Yes. Okay. Um, let's go. Let's use this um, idea of gold rush. You know, in that sense, you know, that um, it happened really quick and it was gone. And Sadly enough, you know, we see it in the forest as well now. But um, um, those kind of things about the land it, and, and about Indian principles, you know, to, to only take as much as we need and as much as we use. And that's, that's how we look after things. And to be able to share stories about how to protect things like the water Mm-hmm. Um, are going to be and sharing those stories are going to be so exciting and, and interesting to um, uh, promote a, a story about um, um, the truth and how simple um, bringing it down to what I'll call is uh, the lowest common denominator uh, in the fact that um, you know 
we've got to look after the land first and foremost. The land being the lowest common denominator. Yeah. We're all here. We only have one yes. land. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I may. Yes. Sorry, I'm please. I'm going to... Um, one time I was in Hat Creek and I was on top of the mountain. And um, it it started to rain. And the rain felt really good. It was a beautiful day. And there was a raindrop that fell. And I watched it. And then, pretty soon it, it formed a little trickle. And that, that little trickle formed a, a little stream. And then the stream formed a creek. And then it went into the river. Mm -hmm. And eventually that, that raindrop made it all the way to the ocean. And all along its route to its destination, it was teaching me that it is very important to always look for the path of least resistance all the way down. You know, that water, and, and the same with reconciliation, to find the balance here. Water is is very sacred. It's something that we can easily take for granted. The water gives gives life to everything in our entire existence. Without water, none of us would survive. Mm -hmm. It quenches our thirst, cleanses our bodies, provides us with food prepares our food. This day and age, it provides us with transportation and a form of transportation and, and energy. That's how sacred that water is. That water is so sacred that it can also take our life away. Mm -hmm. So finding that balance. So in the same path of least resistance around reconciliation, um, the water has a lot to teach us. <laughs> it does, and I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this metaphor of, of water and reconciliation. Um, is, it, is it really as simple as the path of least resistance? And maybe that's too broad. A, bring, a, a bring it down question. to again to the lowest common denominator. You know that we all have a lot of work to do here in we order do. for that to happen. Um, when I was chief, um, I don't want to say the word fought. You know that that's because that puts me in the defensive here, mm -hmm. right? So I I, I worked hard to try to deliver um, title and rights. Right? That, that's kind of what chiefs do. They, they protect it, uh, number one, protect it. 
So I, I worked hard for 10 years to try to deliver the, the legal definition of what title and rights mean and what they are. And and I wasn't able to do that. And and it's still not being delivered. It's not, the definition is, it's not defined yet. No, I agree. Is, right? Yeah. So, so I wasn't able to do that. So now I leave that work to my children. <laughs> and I, sorry, kids. Yeah. <laughs> So left you so, a job. Yeah. So so the reconciliation, you know, is it going to take place in our lifetime, or is it just easier said than done? Yeah, we're going to reconcile, and we're going to commit to do these kind of things. And is it really going to happen on the ground? You know, that type of thing. There's a lot of work to do in order for that to be done properly. Absolutely, I could not agree with you anymore that reconciliation is going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of recognition, a lot of compromise, and a lot of participation in partnerships. And again, I'm not trying to you know define or, or come up with any political statements. It's more along the lines of... Um, is it something that can happen, or is it just a dream? No, it it can happen, and it should. On the one hand. On the other hand, there are outstanding questions that need to be addressed in order for that to happen. And they're not easy questions. Okay. I get the feeling this is an entirely another episode of a podcast around reconciliation <laughs> alone. Uh, and I... There's part of me that desperately wants to ask what those questions are, but I know that that's going to lead us down a rabbit hole and we're going to be here for another three hours. Um, but I'm encouraged by the fact that you say that you think reconciliation can happen. I, I think it can happen. I, I think it will happen. But I think that really it's it can't happen until we recognize that there have been past wrongdoings, that it's more than just oh, it happened 100 years ago, forget about it. There is some element of truth to that, but the larger element of truth is you got to recognize that it happened. Without that, there's no moving forward. Is that uh, one of the stumbling blocks, I think, that a lot of people Simple run enough. into? Yeah. Um, we, in a very short period of time, we were dispossessed from the land. And because of the dispossession, we became dependent. And that's that needs some work. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to reconciliation, Mike, even though we may not be able to come up with a, a definition that's going to suit everyone, um, can we explain for the larger audience, the international audience, uh, the ones that are watching and listening to this in Europe or Africa or Asia who have only gotten the glimpse, maybe it's a headline of reconciliation in Canada. What exactly does that, can you, are you able to describe what that means for an international listener or viewer? I, I can tell you what I think. 
And what I think is that healing has to take place. It 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 always seems that um, I'm always healing from something, <laughs> you know. Type two diabetes. I got to look after that. If I don't, I've got to heal from it to become healthy again. So so healing is is uh, one of the key steps towards reconciliation, healing those past wounds that were opened and left opened. Um, we have to fix that. Um, we have to take those steps that um, Im improve the health of, let alone ourselves, um, that heal the planet, that heal the air and the water, that heal those things. That's the reconciliation. Heal the forests. You know, um, believe me, there's a lot of healing to do out there. There was some wildfires. There was clear-cutting. There was uh, flooding. There was, you know, all these things that, that have happened and, and have to be healed. So together, through reconciliation, we can begin to look at those kind of things that are impacting all of us. So reconciliation equals healing. It's a part of it. That's only one part of it. There's there's other things too that we could include quite easily. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think this is the kind of uh, you know rabbit hole that we could mm -hmm. we could talk about, and and maybe we should in a future episode to sit down and talk uh, even just from personal perspectives around reconciliation, because I think it would be wrong for us to try to speak for everyone else when it comes to what does reconciliation mean? Because it's going to mean different things to different people and different things are going to have to happen for different people for them to accept some kind of form of reconciliation. Um, education is, is part of reconciliation. Health, um, economic development would be a part of it. Um, housing, another one. You know, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Inclusion. Yes. So if I can if I can try and drill down a little bit here with you, Mike, on why does reconciliation need to happen? Is it it's it's gotta be broader than just recognition. So maybe there's a timeline here that we need to explore. Um what is that timeline? It you know I, I touched on it a little bit. Um, we were we were dispossessed from the land, and, and so we became dependent. A lot of times, many of us became dependent on, on the handouts that the government provides um, or under-provides. And it, it carries on that... Uh, um, Uh, a scale of economy that is is not a happy one. Um, we we spoke Shushwap, and then we're forced to learn English. Uh, we were taken away, uprooted from our families, and um, sent to learn skills that would in a sense, help us along our paths. We were looked at as um, weak. 
when we were very strong, we, we had doctors, we had um, um, ethnobotanists, we had scientists and everything else, but it wasn't acknowledged, it wasn't recognized. And some of the... Uh, never given credit for some of the uh, things that we um, introduced to the world. And instead we were looked at as, um, as heathens, as savages, as those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to go there, but it is part of the history. And so through the reconciliation and through the healing of residential schools, now the, the federal government has apologized. Um, the, the Anglican Church has apologized. Um, there's been, um, what is that called? Common experience payments made to the survivors of Indian residential school. So that part of it has... Um, um, now been considered and it's easier said than done it's time to move on there's there's still that healing that has to take place because um, of the open wounds so so the healing is um, now taking uh, you know it's now being considered of people being able to come forward and tell their stories of what happened to them there in those um in those schools, and and that's just one little corner of it. There's, um, like I talked about, the scales of economy that that needs to change. You know, those chiefs of 1910, they said we're willing to share half, mm-hmm. and something happened along the way, and it's it's not being shared the way that. Um, our chiefs laid out for us and whatnot. So that needs to be looked after. And um, when I look at the land, I, 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 I am pretty rich. I'm a pretty rich person when I look at the, the rights that I have to hunt and to fish and to gather for sustenance and, and learn those medicines and learn the land. And like I said, learn the language. Now that I've done a lot of that, I have a heavy-duty responsibility of passing those teachings on and sharing those stories really with anyone who's willing to listen. And, and it's uh, through, through tourism that it's a beautiful opportunity to be able to do all that. So the reconciliation as it, as it um, pertains to tourism is the doors wide open. And it's up to us to develop a story that that keeps the interest of people, you know, that doesn't, doesn't go laying guilt, shame, and blame, and that type of thing, but instead encourages people to um, take healthy and bold steps together to really provide true and meaningful reconciliation. I think it's key. And correct me if I'm wrong again, but part of that is telling everyone's story. Because everyone that is on this land now that came over either as a, an immigrant back uh, in Canada's infancy or North America's infancy, um, part of that is recognition of being somewhere new and 
being accurate in telling everyone's story. Everyone's story from whether you're a, a European immigrant that's come over or whether you're one of the, uh, of the uh, indigenous people that live here. Those stories are equally as important. They're just told from different perspectives. And that in itself is inclusion. That in itself is a step towards healing because we're recognizing everyone and the role that they have played and will play. You know, when, when, when that day happens, wow, I want to be right in the front of the line and saying, uh, you know, um, the Indian people have been hosts on this land for a very long time. We've welcomed uh, and continue to welcome people to come share in that beautiful culture that you just talked about, Jason. Um, it's so exciting to be a part of that and, and you know, to, to be able to share in that excitement of, yeah, we're, we're not done. We've got a lot of work to do, but let's, let's, let's have fun along the way let's too. Let's face it with excitement. Let's, yeah, let's, let's do this with a little bit of enthusiasm. You know, there's ways to do it like that. And it's, uh, it should come out like very positive and healthy for for everyone no uh no blame uh how did you say it before uh no shame no blame uh it's it, yeah it's i don't know I, I keep coming back again to inclusion because it's the it's that part that has been missing i think historically that has done the most damage yeah, from from 1927 to to 1951, um, the Indian people weren't allowed. If they had a dispute, they weren't allowed to go to court. It was illegal for a lawyer to take a case. So there was no inclusion. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even until 1960 that Indians were considered human beings. So we've tackled some really, really deep and heavy subjects here today, and uh, it really wasn't my intent. So we talked a little bit about, uh, and you've shared the story about the chief who called you out uh, uh, to dance uh, with him. Because I, I know you're such an, uh, a compellingly interesting man, um, and we've all had moments with other people in our lives who have been influential in some other way. Uh, can you think of any others that have influenced you or, or steered you in a direction or maybe changed a, a, a course in your life? Uh, anyone else that's made a, an impact for you? Had to clear that lump in my throat. But it... It was my brothers and sisters. Um, there, I'm the 11th one. I'm the youngest in our family. And uh, it was my brothers and sisters. My, my mom died when I was five years old. And uh, my, my dad died when I was 13. And had it not been for my brothers and sisters, I, I'm, 
I could have easily taken a different path. Mm -hmm. But I didn't. And yes, I learned a lot of things the hard way. But through their continued support, I had a brother one time that uh, we lived in uh, in uh, the apple orchards down in the U.S. So there was apples, everything. And one, one harvest, my brother asked me if um, I wanted to go help him pick apples. And sure enough, I went and joined him. And I was probably too young, you know, to, to actually be out there. But mm-hmm. I got a picking bag and helped him and... Um, Got up early every day and did that. It was one of the first jobs I had. Um, and then at the end of the season, he says, we should go do something. So so we, we wound up taking a Greyhound bus to Seattle. And we wound up at Pike Place Market. Oh, yeah. So we're chumming around there, eating good food and everything. And he wound up buying a necklace. This was 1971. Okay. So he had this necklace, and you know, I, I forgot all about it. There was some uh, Czechoslovakian trade beads, and there were some Russian brass beads on this necklace. A beautiful thing, and I, I never thought much about it through the years. And then a couple of years ago, he brought it out, and he showed me that that necklace, and, and he gave it to me. Wow. So now I proudly wear that when I when I dance. And, um, you know, then there's also um, another brother who who helped raise me and, and look after me and teach me kind of like, um, almost like a regime, you know, the discipline that's required and mm-hmm. make your bed every day, pick up your um, dirty clothes every day and have in order, you know. he At the time, I thought he was mean, but, but the, the discipline that I yeah. learned from that later on in years helps me today you know that same discipline is happening today and um, rest his soul so i'm going to change gears again on you a little bit mike and i want to talk again about tourism in the caribou chilcotin coast region and uh, maybe as a bit of a, a wind up to tonight's episode i want to know from your perspective i'm sure you've traveled a large part of the caribou chilcotin coast region what are some of your highlights? If someone's coming from internationally, or even if it's someone that's coming from uh, just outside our region, where are the places that you're going to say, you got to go here? You know, it's really funny. I talked about um, Hat Creek Ranch. A beautiful spot, beautiful land beautiful water it's just close to my heart you know that that hat creek ranch and uh that's the first place that came to my mind in there and you know but i'm biased as well because i'm from <laughs> cash creek sure you know? yeah um the Hatsuth heritage village is another place you know an incredible story there that how it came to be you know i'm learning this myself you know just by hanging out down there and and uh um, the rich history of the elder that speaks so highly about, um, you know, maintaining uh, and looking after the, the Hatsuth Heritage Village. 
um, there's um, there's uh, my friend has a, a ranch here, and um, um, it eventually will hopefully become open to public, you know. But he's got a few horses. He's a really nice guy, and his dream is to have a, a riding stable or trail rides and whatnot, you know. So there's a great opportunity there. Um, places to come. Who would I? Where would I bring them to? Mm-hmm. Um, or where are some of your favorite places to yeah, be? Yeah. Um, uh, likely is a beautiful spot. It's a beautiful piece of um, um, this area. And Horsefly is another place. They're beautiful places to go. And, and you know, how come people aren't lining up to go to these places? Because let alone the beauty of the place, the people. There's so many people are so friendly, you know, and they just welcome each and every one. And some of those places you can get these little little places you go to get food and things like that. There, Go there, find these places, these little niches, you know, that they've created themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the, the Chakutan area is... Uh, so vast and and so beautiful. Um, you know, there's four directions out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage of places to go. Yeah, in the Caribou Chilcotin Coast region. Yeah. If there was something else that you wanted to mention that you think an international or local or anyone else might want to know before they come here, or even if they are from here. Uh, it's an open-ended question. It's an opportunity for you to say, yeah, absolutely, I think you should definitely do or uh, go or uh, something like that. If there's some other message that you wanted to include, here's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Such a great opportunity to be able to provide, um, uh, to, to have this real privilege to sit with you, Jason, to talk about things that were that were right inside my heart, um, the enthusiasm that um, that and the safe place that you've created, and the vision that you have about about um, this this podcast is um, is way beyond um, um, something that that. It needs to happen more often, you know. A frank discussion about um, about that that history of who we are. Thank you. Um, we've been on this land for eight hundred and seven generations, and the evidence is there. And who could dispute the fact that we've been here that long? We've survived. We've, we've, it came from um, not being a human being to being a human being. And, and it's those kind of things that, those, those transformational changes that we've made uh, through the history of who we are and given the opportunity to be able to share those kind of stories with with guests who who come from all over the world um, to 
to learn more about our culture, and maybe even become more interested in who we are. You know, now's your opportunity to do that. And um, it's not the only opportunity. There are so many opportunities out there, but it is one. And um, it would always be a very interesting uh, discussion to be able to share stories directly with um, and individually as well. Um, okay, so you've you've actually done a very good job of identifying some places uh, in our in our immediate region from where we are and where we're recording the show tonight is in Williams Lake, likely is just east of us. Um, Horsefly and likely also uh, just east of us. Hack Creek Ranch is just south of um, uh, well, it's south of Williams Lake. It's south. It's between 100 Mile and Cash Creek. It's just uh, the actual Hat Creek Ranch is right outside Cash Creek. Um, the Chilcotin area you've mentioned is vast and varied. Um, some of the places that I can think of to highlight in the Chilcotin area, at least, uh, include places that uh, I know are just even just great for fishing spots. I, you know, having grown up in this region, uh, I've got a few fishing holes in my back pocket. Um, uh, Tatla Lake is certainly a, 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 an interesting and a beautiful community to go and visit. Um, especially on the Chilcotin Highway, which travels from Williams Lake west to Bella Coola. And that's a, an entirely another episode. Uh, but the Chilcotin Highway is worth exploring. And if you can make contact with a local, and now I'm just talking to the international uh, or the, the, the viewers, is if you can make contact with a local to take you out and show you some of the places that are on the Chilcotin Highway, you will not have enough time in your schedule to be able to explore them all. On the way to Bella Coola, Bella Coola itself is a magical kind of place. At the end of the road, uh, jokingly they say, but it really is at the end of Highway 20, that it's uh, the last stop you'll make on the Pacific Coast side of British Columbia. And when it comes to promoting tourism, Mike, I, I want to thank you for your time tonight. Uh, you know, I'm encouraged and I'm excited about your new role at Barkerville. I think it's right to tell that First Nations, that Indigenous, that Indian perspective, um, because it in itself is a small step towards solving reconciliation in some form or another. Um. For people that wanted to find out a little bit more about you, Mike, uh, is are you open to uh, an email, uh, sharing an email address, or people that want to find out more about uh, your role at Barkerville or your role at Hatsuth? Why not? Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not asking pe for people to spam you or anything like that, but you know, you're definitely one of uh, one of many interesting people that live in the area, and undoubtedly you're going to be one of the you're going to be at the front of uh you know pictures and and uh, the lineup of people who we're going to encourage to come and visit i look forward to meeting each and every one of you come to the interior uh, of british columbia um it is uh, land without limits well done. I think, Mike, there's still lots of questions that we 
could probably ask each other tonight and lots of other uh, topics that we can cover. And maybe uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to do that in a future episode as well, because I, I know you're full of stories that I want to be able to give an audience to share with. Uh, and I've got a few of my own. So uh, until next time, I just want to thank you for, again for being here and being part of the inaugural episode of the untold stories of the Caribou Chilcotin Coast. So thank thanks you, again. Jason. Thank you.